Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 53, The Long, Long Trail. As we discussed last day, the Battle of the Somme entered a new phase of operations following the July 1st debacle. Much to the chagrin of Joseph Joff, Douglas Haig insisted that future attacks be directed south of the Albert Bapaume Road. This narrower front encompassed the area running east from Ovier's La Boiselle, before hooking at Bazentine and continuing south towards Montauban. Over the next two weeks, 4th Army would engage in a number of battles across this square frontage, with each battle aimed at establishing a solid line from which to assault the 2nd German position. From July 2nd to the 14th, 4th Army would mount 46 separate battles, resulting in 25,000 British casualties. To account for every one of these battles, although all important in their own right, it would take longer than our episodes on July the 1st. So instead, we're going to focus on the two larger engagements which played out over this 12-day period. This week will be the battle for Canton Maison, followed by Mamet's Wood next day. This two-week period is crucial to how the remainder of the campaign played out. With the French still being squeezed at Verdun, Haig had little choice but to maintain pressure on the Germans. His solution was to press the Germans by means of limited local attacks, concentrating mainly on exploitation of the gains made south of the main road. Given the prevailing circumstances, it is difficult to see what Haig could do otherwise. His decision, however, condemned the British army to a slow advance across the terrain, which greatly favored the enemy. As we'll see over the next few episodes, these assaults were typical of British actions on the Somme, in that they were piecemeal, poorly prepared, and hastily arranged. Yet each battle formed an important step in the BEF's learning process. However clumsy they may have been, the British had wrestled the initiative from the Germans, and would inflict punishing casualties each step of the way. To begin, we will return to Ovier's La Boiselle and pick up where we left off in Part 3. The intensity of the fighting on July the 1st had rendered the landscape around Ovier's La Boiselle unrecognizable. The battlefield was a nightmare of sounds and sights. There are no more villages now than a dust heap, wrote Australia's official war correspondent Charles Bean, who passed through the area that afternoon. As far as the eye could see were jagged tree stumps, smoldering ruins, and debris of battles scattered about. Lumps of stone, smashed weapons, and corpses littered the battlefield. Between the lines, wounded men who had been caught in the barbed wire or hit by bullets still moaned, crying out for water and stretcher bearers. As the sun rose, the fields reeked of death. Although the fighting had raged throughout the evening, there was to be no respite for the infantry. At 10 p.m. on July the 1st, Rawlinson issued orders by which the attack would resume the following day. The orders detailed that 3rd Corps was to move along the albert Bapam Road, in the direction of Contomaison. After July the 1st, this section was in need of consolidation. The dilapidated 8th and 34th Divisions were in desperate need of relief. Rawlinson feared that a counterattack would unhinge the front so it became priority for reinforcements to be sent to that sector. The changing of the guard took place overnight in pitch darkness, only broken by the clashes of flare and shellfire which illuminated the horizon. British communication trenches were cluttered with frantic movements. Survivors of the 8th and 34th Divisions made their way back towards Albert, while the new arrivals, the 19th and 12th Divisions, moved into line. 
The 19th took over the 34th Olds Front at La Boiselle, while the 12th took over 8th's former positions at Ovieres. For the new arrivals, this was their first experience of war, and what they witnessed on way to the front filled them with utter dread. The trenches were left in a horrific state, with bits of equipment and body parts strewn about. Stretcher bearers raced back and forth, carrying the grotesque remains of their comrades who howled in agony as they passed. In total darkness, the wounded were morbid specters, their cries drowning out the chaos like some hellish concert. There was no time for the infantry to familiarize themselves with their new terrain. Although they were little inclined to push on, 3rd Corps was under orders to press the enemy at the earliest possible moment, and 3rd Corps commander, William Pulteney, was keen to oblige. On the afternoon of July 2nd, 19th Division launched a renewed attack on La Boiselle, which finally succeeded in wrestling the village from German hands. Where the 34th Division had been shot to pieces just 24 hours earlier, the 19th Division took advantage of the lull in action which caught the Germans by surprise. The Germans, who had waited until daylight to reinforce, were caught in the midst of a change when the attackers burst through the morning haze. The Germans reacted quickly and managed to greet the first waves with blistering machine gun fire. As the day grew brighter and hotter, the British battalion secured the flanks and were inching towards La Boiselle Center. At 3.30pm, an artillery ruse swung the battle firmly in British favor. The Germans were tricked into shelling no man's land opposite Ovieres instead, which allowed British reinforcements to push across in front of La Boiselle and surround the village. Bitter fighting took place for the rest of the day, but by 9pm, 19th Division's forces had cleared La Boiselle and its surrounding defenses. This included the line of redoubts overlooking Sausage Valley, which had eviscerated the Tyneside Irish Brigade on July the 1st. Although La Boiselle was finally secure, pushing beyond the village proved difficult. The fortified village of Contomaison, which housed the headquarters of the 183rd German Infantry Division, were able to fix the dents and prevent a breakthrough. Thus, when darkness fell on July 2nd, 19th Division was unable to advance any further. With La Boiselle finally in British hands, new opportunities opened up. On the afternoon of July the 3rd, Rawlinson issued a new set of orders which reflected 4th Army's overall position. The modified orders saw two simultaneous attacks, aimed at stabilizing the British line south of Poissier Ridge. 3rd Corps, as expected, would attempt to exploit their success of July 2nd by capturing Ovieres, and then advance onto Contomaison soon after. Capturing Contomaison would give the British an ideal launching pad for future operations. Situated atop a spur with views in all directions, Contomaison was sighted at a junction of several roads, located 5 kilometers northeast of Albert on the southern side of the main road. It had only 72 houses, yet its church and chateau on the north end gave the Germans an excellent observation point. Much of the artillery used in the defense of Contomaison would be directed from these buildings. While 3rd Corps moved towards Contomaison, the second part of the attack, Henry Horn's 15th Corps, would strike northwards to Mamet's Wood, thus pinching off the salient and facilitating a new position from which to attack the second German positions in the region. As mentioned before, the attack on Mamet's Wood will be the focus of next week's episode. Today, they will be on the efforts to take Contomaison. I did not have time to do a map this week, but everything we'll be discussing is marked on last week's map if you need additional reference. 
Of course, you'll find last week's map at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. Operations against Canto Maison resumed in the early hours of July the 4th under an iron-gray sky. A spectacular bombardment, beginning at 2.15am, rained down on the German positions at Oviers for the second time in under 72 hours. Attacking Oviers was the newly arrived 12th Division, whose 35th Brigade would attack to the south, with her sister brigade, the 37th, hooking to the north. This time, however, the Germans were better prepared. Although July the 1st had been a successful day, it wasn't like the Germans could rest on their laurels. They too knew the battle was far from over, and they would have to adapt the changing circumstances if they wanted to survive. On July the 3rd, 2nd Army Commander Fritz von Belov met with Falkenhayn at Army Headquarters in Saint-Quentin. Although Falkenhayn had badly misjudged the strength of the French attack, he nevertheless made it clear to von Belov that he was unimpressed with 2nd Army's defenses, insomuch that Falkenhayn removed von Belov's chief of staff, Paul von Grunert, because von Grunert had authorized a withdrawal against the French colonials. In the context of Verdun, this was a double whammy which Falkenhayn took personally. In short, Grunert was made accountable for Falkenhayn's failure to take the warning sign seriously. Overall, it did little to change the situation, but it did allow Falkenhayn to save face and resulted in a fire being lit under von Belov. Just before the British attacked again, von Belov issued a strongly worded order to his army, which accurately foreshadowed events to come. Quote, the outcome of the war depends on Second Army being victorious on the Somme. We must hold our current positions without fail and improve of them by means of minor counterattacks. I forbid the voluntary relinquishment of positions. Every commander is responsible for making each man in the army aware about this determination to fight it out. The enemy must be made to pick his way forward over our corpses. End quote. The German defenders had spent two years manning and preparing these positions. They knew them well, and were not about to let the Allies take them without a fight. When the attack came, the Germans were determined to cling to every trench, dugout, and step. Essentially, what occurred between July the 4th and 14th were a series of attacks along the Ovier's Canton Maison line. 3rd Corps advanced east towards Porzier, while 15th Corps supported them from Freikorps and Mametz. These attacks happened simultaneously, so although we won't get to 15th Corps today, keep in mind that a separate battle was being fought at the same time, and we'll fill in the remaining gaps next week. At 3.15am on July the 4th, units of 12th Division, opposite Oviers, burst through the haze and were hit by devastating counterfire. 37th Brigade was badly mauled, but the 35th on the south side was making progress. The capture of La Boiselle had helped secure the 35th left flank, allowing them to reach the outskirts of Oviers. Once they got there, they found their progress impeded by several obstacles. Not only had this part of the battlefield not been cleared of the dead, but the intensity of the shelling had gouged deep holes in the ground, which impeded the progress of the attackers. The attackers here were the 5th Royal Berkshires, who along with the 7th Royal West Kents led the assault south of the village. As they did so, they seized the almost empty first-line trenches with great determination, which often involved vicious hand-to-hand -hand combat. Here, the Berkshire War Diary recounts the lack of supply, enemy resistance, and poor visibility, causing mass confusion. The morning was so dark 
it was difficult to tell a friend from foe, and the shriek of battle drowned out orders from officers. The attack soon devolved into small unit battles. Platoons, squads, and parties of men from mixed units split from the main effort to find their own way through. This did not help Central Command, who were unable to piece together a coherent picture of the attack. Resupply and reinforcement efforts were impossible in these circumstances. Luckily, a respite in the action came at 9am when the heavens opened. A torrential downpour fell on the battlefield, flooding dugouts, trenches, and turning the ground into morass. In these difficult conditions, Pulteney ordered all operations be suspended until the weather improved. The problem was that this brought little comfort to the Burks and West Kents outside Oviers, who now faced the prospect of standing in knee-deep slime for several days. Despite making great strides that morning, casualties had been high, resulting in the Burks and Kents being sent back for refitting. The attack on Oviers that morning had cost 12th Division 2,400 officers and men in exchange for no meaningful gain. The lines west of the village remained as they were since July the 1st. The downpour that began on July the 4th lasted non-stop until the 7th, and even then things were not promising. Trenches had been filled with water, and under shell fire collapsed beyond repair. Supply movement was dreadfully slow, in some cases requiring 14 horses to pull a single ammunition wagon. Man and beast both fainted from exhaustion. Under such appalling conditions, no operations could continue. And that, my friends, meant British and German forces could re-evaluate their positions. On July 7th, good news arrived as Henry Horn's 15th Corps was activated for battle. Horn had not been able to take part in the July 4th attack because Rawlinson did not feel the Freikommermetz line needed immediate attention. Unwilling to let them advance without reinforcements, Rawlinson ordered Horn to hold his ground and await news on the progress of 3rd Corps' attacks. The rain delays allowed 15th Corps a bit of breathing room, and they were now ready to assist 3rd Corps in pinching off the salient. South of Contalmaison and Mamet's Wood, the Germans occupied a complex position dubbed Quadrangle Alley. Quadrangle Alley guarded the corridor between these two positions snaking its way around the southwestern tip of Amet's Wood and continuing on to Contalmaison. Quadrangle Alley consisted of a series of underground support trenches, which allowed the Germans to allocate men and reserves out of harm's way. The approach leading to the position was further protected by two small woods. Bayalef Wood, just to the left of Contalmaison, and the peculiarly named Acid Drop Cops, located between Contalmaison and Mamets. Acid Drop Cops was nicknamed by the soldiers because its shape reminded them of citric acid candies, which were popular in England. On July the 3rd, British patrols reported that both Bayalef Wood and the Quadrangle were empty, but with the torrential rain and subsequent delay, this advantage was soon washed away. The Germans were not the only ones to benefit from a few days off, as they used the time to reinforce vulnerable areas of their front. Weather conditions did not approve on July 7th, yet Pulteney and Horn agreed it was best to press the attack before the window closed. To assist Pulteney's divisions, Horn agreed to launch a subsidiary attack against the Quadrangle. Despite repeated warnings from his divisional commanders, who rightly feared counterfire from a Metz wood, the attack got underway at 2am. The 10th Lancashires and 9th Northumberland Fusiliers fought their way through torrential rain showers and the bleak morning mist. 
As expected, the attack was destined to fail. Without the security of Mehmet's Wood, the British were soon fragmented by heavy MG fire coming from the quadrangle. The Fusiliers were caught in a withering counterfire which inflicted heavy losses. Although small parties were able to reach as far as Contomaison, overall momentum had been lost, and the men were soon cut off. Determined counterattacks led by Prussian commando units eventually drove the isolated Fusiliers back to their starting point. A second attempt by the 12th Manchesters that morning led to similar results. The Manchesters, like the Fusiliers before, were splintered by the German MGs in the quadrangle. Mirroring the earlier assault, the attackers were sprayed with murderous counterfire and the attack disintegrated. The Manchesters would lose 16 officers and 539 men in the assault. Having failed to open the western approach to Cantomaison, the axis of advance switched back to the Albert-Bapam Road where the 19th and 12th Divisions continued their thrust and parry. East of La Boiselle, 19th Division's men advanced a considerable distance. By 7.30 a.m., the weather cleared. The clouds parted, and a terrific sunshine baked the waterlogged battlefield. Humidity rose, and the men, tired, exhausted, and damp, were called into action. The objective of 19th Division was to seize the German redoubts a little west of Bale of Wood, which faced Cantomaison across 400 meters of shallow valley. British mortars had pounded Bale of Wood for most of the morning, stripping away vegetation and leaving only these scorched husks of trees. For the Germans, this had terrible consequences. With no natural cover, their positions were exposed to the full weight of British firepower. Famously, the task of seizing Bailiff Wood was assigned to the Yorkshires, who after capturing the western half of the wood, were to wield northwards and capture a line of trenches running east to west. The Allied bombardment of Bailiff Wood did its job, and large parties of Germans could be seen fleeing towards Cantomaison. With great dash and determination, the Yorkshires faced withering counterfire from the wood, yet were able to reach the German trenches and begin bombing their way forward. The Germans left occupying the wood were in no condition for prolonged resistance. Having been thrown in with no food or ammunition, the defense of the wood soon fizzled out. In addition to capturing Bailiff Wood, the Yorkshires took 400 German POWs. While this was happening, 23rd Division in the center of the advance prepared to make the first major assault on Cantomaison. 23rd Division, consisting of the 68th and 24th Brigades, attacked with a two-pronged assault. The 68th was to secure the flank of Bailiff Wood, while the 24th was to make a direct assault on the village itself. The situation was difficult, as the rain flooded the countryside and the men were waist-deep in mud. While the initial attack got off to a decent start, the men were soon bogged down by the combined effects of the mud in the valley and the machine gun fire coming from Cantomaison and the trenches north of Bailiff Wood. Nevertheless, 23rd Division was able to make significant headway. Unfortunately, the 1st Worcestershires, leading the advance, had gotten off to an undistinguished start. Prior to attack, they had come under fire from their own artillery, causing a significant number of friendly fire casualties. Furthermore, the East Lancashires, who were attacking on the left of the Worcestershires, had wandered into a muddy field and were slow to extract themselves. This forced the Worcestershires to go it alone. Braving intense machine gun fire, the Worcestershires were able to reach the outskirts of Contomaison, 
the determined companies clung bitterly to their possessions and began pushing their way into the village. Seventy-five Germans surrendered on sight, while the other battalions fought their way towards the village center, engaging the Germans from house to house in close-quarter combat. Just when it looked like victory was in reach, the weather turned. Heavy rain started up again, flooding communication trenches and rendering the ground slippery. Efforts to reinforce the Worcestershires were nearly impossible in these conditions, and unfortunately, the Worcestershires were forced to withdraw from Cantomaison after German counterattacks ejected them from the village. By July 8th, however, the British were able to claw themselves around Cantomaison. The 68th and 24th Brigades were in a position to surround the village and primed to renew the attack once the weather cleared. Meanwhile, to the northwest, 12th Division continued its advance on Obiers. The assaulting formations, 74th and 36th Brigades, had attacked across the head of Mash Valley at 8 o'clock in the morning on July 7th. The battalions reached the 1st German Trench, but were unable to exploit their gains due to horrendous casualties. Throughout the assault, the Germans pounded the British with unremitting machine gun and artillery fire. Within minutes, hundreds of British soldiers were killed or wounded. However, these men's blood was up, and at 8.30, they had lunged beyond the first trench and grabbed a foothold in the second. For the remainder of the morning, a bitter back-and-forth battle raged in the German system. Both sides were rejected numerous times, only to retake lost ground. The fighting was bitter, and no quarter was given. Both armies were ordered not to take prisoners. But as the heavens opened for a second time that morning, the attack soon stalled. 36th Brigade had lost over 1,400 killed or wounded, but in exchange were able to maintain a foothold in the western outskirts of Oviers. However, the village would not fall to the British after another nine days of brutal, hellish fighting. Swinging back to Cantomaison, the morning of July 8th offered new opportunities. Due to the recent downpour, the mud in the trenches remained thick, making the tasks of consolidation, evacuation of the wounded, and bringing up of supplies and reinforcements a Herculean task. The Germans were still in active control of the village, and better yet, were dry with a roof over their heads. For the British infantry, having spent the previous week living in swamp dugouts, the prospect of a night indoors was most tantalizing. For most of July 8th, the 23rd Division did what they could to prepare for the final assault. Raiding parties were sent out to perform reconnaissance and check their German wire for gaps. In many cases, these small raids turned into full-blown skirmishes, requiring artillery support. From the information obtained through these raids, British command had learned that the Germans were in bad shape. Their commandos had been ground down, and the presence of regular infantry had been sparse. Although the British had been burned by such overoptimism before, a week-long struggle in the most horrible of conditions, any news could be considered good news, which made the coming battle easier to swallow. When the battle resumed the following morning, July 9th, men of the 24th and 69th Brigades were armed with the most recent intel, and were able to put this information to effective use. The 10th Duke of Wellingtons, which were attached to 69th Brigade, were quick to establish a machine gun post just south of Cantomaison, which could cover the whole area. Using this MG as a base of fire, the other battalions were able to move with greater protection, 
and by 8.15 p.m., were able to isolate the remaining defenders inside Bailiff Wood. This meant the path to Contomaison was wide open. While the ferocious struggle for Bailiff Wood continued, the 8th and 9th Green Howards, together with two battalions of the 11th West Yorkshires, were primed to assault Contomaison. But with daylight fast evaporating, were ordered to delay until dawn. The following morning, July the 10th, the final thrust at Contomaison got underway. Starting from their trenches 1,200 meters west of the village, the Yorkshires and Green Howards were subjected to intensive shelling for much of the afternoon. The Yorkshires took heavy losses as they exposed themselves to enemy fire from the village and surrounding defenses. Nonetheless, the Yorkshires carried momentum forward. Using bayonets, they cleared a significant portion of the enemy trench which snaked around the village before being held up by submerged razor wire. The Germans were quick to realize they were at risk of being caught in a pincer, and used the Yorkshire's delay to fall back to the wreckage of the village. From there, they continued to devastate the probing British. On the left of the advance, the 9th Green Howards had stormed into the village, forcing the Germans to divert their attention away from the delayed 8th Greens. This gave the 8th Greens enough time to extract themselves from the wire trap, and the battalions linked up by the ruins of a cottage in the southwest corner of the village. Here, the men now faced a 500-meter fight across a grassy bowl of tangled wire and shell holes. Advancing in short rushes, they captured a German machine gun post which was soon turned against its former owners. Casualties mounted on both sides. Artillery shrieked overhead while the tack-tack of the machine guns filled the air. Despite being outnumbered and outgunned, the exhausted Germans were not giving up lightly. Dog-tired, battered endlessly by the artillery, and harassed by constant attacks, the Germans hung on. True to von Belov's orders, the British were made to fight every step of the way. Reserve Lieutenant Gruber, a gun commander at Contomaison, recalls that during a lull in the fighting, he and his comrades were resigned to their fate. They sat wedged in tight, with knees drawn up, and entertained themselves, by discussing dying. Such was life on the Somme. The British were suffering too. Some 50% of the Green Howard's casualties were taken in the 500 meters between objectives. They had been reduced to just 5 officers and 150 effectives. Yet, when the pendulum of war swung, it was in their favor. The 11th West Yorks, who were attacking from the flanks, had driven the Germans from their western defenses. Those Germans caught in the open were spared no fury as shrapnel shells exploded overhead. When the West Yorks entered Contomaison, the surviving Germans fell into disarray, allowing the West Yorks to make contact with the Green Howards at 5.30pm. In total, almost 300 German prisoners were captured including a battalion commanding officer and numerous machine guns. Although the British had seized Contomaison, holding on to it was a different challenge altogether. Knowing the Germans would be quick to counterattack, the British wasted no time in consolidating what they could. Hastily made fortifications were built, and where weather permitted, precious supplies were brought forward. After two hours of anxious silence, the first of two counterattacks hit Contomaison and much to the relief of the Howards and Yorks, both attempts were feeble. The first attempt at 7.30pm 
was defeated 200 meters from the village, while the second attempt, although more dangerous, was deflected after the heroic act of 2nd Lieutenant Donald Bell, who led an understrength bombing party against a German machine gun post. Having contained the counterattacks, Contomaison was safely in British hands. Royal engineers arrived the following morning and began the process of road repair, laying cables and grave making. After a week of back and forth fighting, there was little left of the village. Its great church lay in ruins, and most of the cottages were piles of brick and wood. Casualties had also been high. 23rd Division suffered 3,485 officers and men, killed, wounded, or missing. Among the dead was 2nd Lieutenant Donald Bell, whose courageous effort to stave off the 2nd counterattack had cost him his life. Bell's regiment, the 9th Yorkshires, were adamant that the young officer be remembered, so in the spot where he fell, the British had constructed a redoubt, henceforth known as Bell's Redoubt. The battle for Contomaison lasted from July the 4th to the 11th, and although the village had been secure, fighting near Ovieres would continue for several days. Ovieres would not fall until the 16th, which was soon followed by the complete capture of Ovieres Ridge, which had been the objective of 8th Division on July the 1st. The fighting along the Albert Bapam Road is characteristic of the Somme battles after July 1st. It was important for the British to maintain the pressure by means of limited local attacks, concentrating mainly on improving their northern position for an assault on the next line of defenses. Under the circumstances, there was little Haig or Rawlinson could have done in order to force battle and thus keep faith with the French. However, the decision committed the British army to a tough slog across unfavorable terrain, and events at Contomaison and Ovieres show just how long the road would be. Next week, we'll shift our focus west and look at one of the more infamous Somme battles, Mamet's Wood. Alright, that's it for this week. Be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Great War Podcast, or reach us through email thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. If you are enjoying the show and want to help us out, there are a couple of ways to get involved. You can make a one-time donation through the homepage, which goes to help cover the cost of hosting and acquiring new sources. Another way to get involved is to go to iTunes and write a 5-star review. iTunes charts their podcast based on the number of user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we'll place. This will help keep us afloat in the rankings and help attract new listeners. This has been episode 53 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.